The Irish Times Inside Politics podcast is going to be holding another live event. This one is in central Dublin on Thursday, May the 16th at 8am. We are going to be in Medley in Dublin too. We only have a few tickets left, so if you want to join me in conversation with head of Ipsos polling in the US, Cliff Young, along with Pat Leahy and Jennifer Bray, looking at the polling in Ireland in the run-up to the European and local elections, just go to irishtimes.com slash events where you can get your tickets. Hello there, and you are very welcome to the Inside Politics Christmas Ask Me Anything podcast from the Irish Times. I'm Hugh Linehan. With me today from our political staff, Harry McGee, Cormac McQuinn, Pat Leahy and Jennifer Bray. A very Merry Christmas to you all. Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas. We're going to go into it straight away. Here's our first question. It's from Timothy Weber in Australia. Hello, Hugh, and the whole Inside Politics team, all the way here from Melbourne, Australia. I'm very grateful to you all for teaching me so much about Irish politics these last years. Here's my question. Do you think Irish politics is evolving, leaving behind the old tribal Fine Fáil, Fine Gael divide that is so hard for us outsiders to understand, into perhaps a more recognisable system, with one major left-wing party, Sinn Féin, and two larger centre-right-wing parties vying for power? Merry Christmas to you all. Harry. Yes, but no. So yes, it is evolving, and I think the hegemony of Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael has come to an end. I think it was delayed during the Celtic Tiger years, but uh, it has become evident uh, mostly in the past decade. Whether it's going to go into an old-fashioned, equally old-fashioned left-right divide is is much harder to say. I think uh, we're going to see uh, an increasingly dissipated, uh, fragmented uh, political landscape in Ireland, as we have seen in many other European countries uh, over the past 10 years. What's happened in Sweden uh, to the big... Uh, party that came after the revolution, what happened in Mexico to the big party that came after the revolution has also happened in Ireland, a little bit belatedly, but I think the pattern of politics is going to go the same. And we're going to see in future years, we're going to see uh, mushroom parties, parties that, that pop up overnight and become very big and very populous very, very quickly. Because there's nothing peculiar Irish about that, is there, Cormac? I mean, the fact is that uh, fragmentation of the political landscape is something that's happening right across Europe anyway. Sure, yeah, and, and fragmentation of the left in Ireland is really why we haven't had a traditional left-right divide. You know, the thing about the political parties we have at the moment is there there are kind of left-right divides even within them. Uh, you know, Fianna Fáil had, had a, a wing of people that were in favour of repealing the Eighth Amendment on abortion. They had many more people that were in favour of keeping the amendment there. You know, Sinn Féin has has left-wing policies for sure, but it also has policies like uh, abolishing the, the property tax, which isn't very left-wing, you know, so it's... It's still hard to see a, a very traditional international style left-right divide developing in, in Ireland. Jen. Hugh, you're looking very smart. Oh, thank you very much. new glasses. Um, I guess the question is, like, is it evolving? Softening me up, obviously. <laughs> yeah. yeah. For I don't know the answer That's to any question. of these questions, and I hope that compliments will mask that. No, um, if the question is, like, is, pol- is politics evolving in line with other countries, like internationally, where we've seen kind of lurches to the right. Like we've talked on this podcast before about how all of the main parties on kind of one of the issues of the day around immigration, you know, Sinn Féin have got like a little bit of praise, I suppose, um, for sticking to kind of a line on immigration. But the interesting thing is that I've noticed in the last few days a little shift in what Sinn Féin, their language around immigration. You know, Mary Lou Macdonald did an interview, I think it was with The Journal, and she was talking about how we need to have space now to ask questions. I think that's very deliberate. Um, so while we haven't seen that kind of lurch to the right that you've seen in, in other European countries, I think we're po- possibly at the start of a process where you're seeing that happening. And when you have parties like Sinn Féin, it's just such a subtle change in language, but I did notice it. Um, and also, if you look at 
independence, the role of the independence, our last poll, I think it had the independence around 20%. So if that holds true and independence or some rural independence in particular, the rural independent group are the group who are talking the loudest, I think, in the doll about immigration. Um, it would be really interesting, I think, to see in the next doll and the makeup, firstly, the role of the independence, what influence that has on the evolution of Irish politics in a different direction. Left or right, whatever that might exactly. mean, because yeah. even those definitions are changing. Pat, I'm going to put another question to you. It's from uh, Peter Cadogan. And he asks, in a hypothetical election scenario where A, Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael are polling at around 40% combined and B, the widely accepted most likely government is some variation of Sinn Féin with Fianna Fáil or plus possibly some smaller parties, which message is most likely to resonate with those 40% of voters, the ones who might vote Fianna Fáil or Fine Gael? Is it A, Fine Gael, who will be saying, vote for us uh, because a vote for Fianna Fáil will lead to a Sinn Féin Taoiseach? Or is it B, Fianna Fáil, vote for us for a stronger say in government, don't let Sinn Féin have it all their own way? Well, that's a highly developed question. Um, but, thank you, Peter. Uh, thank you, Peter. Thank you, Hugh. Um, I think that Fine Gael have tried to set it up. And they may well try this again next time. They have tried in the past to set the politi- the, the choice facing voters up as a binary one between them and Sinn Féin. And I, you know, you can see the reasons for that because there is a pool of voters that they share to a degree with Fianna Fáil that is quite antipathetic to Sinn Féin. So there will be an anti-Sinn Féin vote there. I think Fianna Gael is more likely uh, to be in a position to get that. The only thing is that Fine Gael have tried this before and they haven't had a great deal of success. Like the they tried South it. by-election was a real they example They tried of it at Dublin South, they tried it uh, to an extent at the last general election and Irish voters know that their choices range beyond the binary because we've got this crowded political system and that their choices extend right down the ballot paper beyond simply... Uh, uh, Sinn Féin and Fine Gael. Um, so I think, you know, there isn't a simple answer to that question and nor are parties because in a system such as ours whose uh, the electoral aspects of our political system are so crowded by personalities and local affairs. Jen made the reference to local independence mm. there, whose focus is almost entirely on the local. And, yeah. you know, candidates from Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael and from all parties realise that and play their electoral game with that uh, in mind So as well. I suppose there's an underlying idea under Peter's question, which is that there is such a thing as an anything but Sinn Féin vote or a keep them out vote that might be accessible at the next election, particularly since for the first time, really, Sinn Féin are seeing as a possible or even probable party of government. Yeah, and I think that the question of a Sinn Féin Fianna Fáil government is one of the ones that will dominate and politicians hate being asked by, about government formation over the course of yeah. an election campaign because they don't like to have to answer those questions which is one yeah. of the reasons why we keep asking uh, I'm remembering asking your question. exchange with Michal at the Fianna Fáil Ardesh, which was so tatchy he got so tatchy you wouldn't believe it how, how long did he bang on about that for? About us asking this because question Because you asked yes, yeah. in a hypothetical situation after the next election would Fianna Fáil go into coalition with Sinn Féin? And he basically said the media are so blind. And you're not holding Sinn Féin to account enough. Like it was an extraordinary, and I think you printed actually most of it word for yeah, word. Yeah, we did. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, um, so like, I think 
that uh, I think that that question will be central to I think Fine Gael will rule out any coalition with Sinn Féin mm. uh, afterwards. Fianna Fáil, I expect to be a bit more circumspect and it will be very interesting to see how Fianna Fáil manages that question over the course of the election campaign because I don't think we're in the sort of position that they were in at the last election where Fianna Fáil was ruling out Sinn Féin not just on political or policy grounds really but almost on moral grounds and that Michal Martin closed the campaign talking about the murder of Paul Quinn and that and really harking back to Sinn Féin's role as apologists for the IRA both before the uh, before the ceasefires but also after the ceasefires I mean, the murder of Paul Quinn took place many years after the ceasefires so I think that this will be a really important part of the mix when it comes to the next general election campaign. But I don't think there are very simple answers and you can't put the electorate in a very simple anti-Sinn Féin box. And Just to follow up on that, because we have another we have another question in from Paul Gethin and Paul asked, uh, how does Micheál Martin really feel about Sinn Féin? Is there a strategic element to his anti-Sinn Féin stance ahead of possible coalition negotiations or is it something more visceral? Is what uh, he really dislikes Sinn Féin. Like, okay. It's not like something that he just puts on. Like You can't fake, well you probably could if you wanted to, but realistically day in, day out, you can't fake the level of um, disdain that he has for how the party operates now. Like he views him very much as populist, um, as being a party that would say absolutely anything to win over votes. Um, And then obviously like he's, you know, kind of a historian himself, you know, he's a very knowledgeable on those matters. Which, and which he'll mention from every, if, every now and if then. If prompted. Over, It'll probably over be less genuine, in fact, if he does start to roll back a bit and leave leave a bit more space for the possibility of, of government with, with Sinn Féin, because I, I very much believe his stance at the moment, which, you know, is... So I, I go, think it is genuine, but it is a really interesting yeah. question as to whether if there is to be a Fianna Fáil Sinn Féin coalition could Micheál Martin lead it or would he lead it? I don't think I he would. I just don't know the answer to I that I don't think he yet. would. I think that's an absolute no. Could I also go back to that question that you asked from Peter? He has, he's written out like which message is most likely to resonate with voters and he's put messages on the on the different camps. Like he says, Fine Gael, vote for us, vote for Fianna Fáil will lead to a Sinn Féin Taoiseach. I think Fine Gael's message in the next election will be We've been a steady hand, albeit we blew billions on the National Children's Hospital. We've been a steady hand. We've steered the economy through to the position where we're full, et cetera, et cetera. Um, a ch- change is dangerous. I actually think that's what they're going to say in the next election. Feed of all, a bit more tricky, like you but say. It, the second option there of, of don't let Sinn Féin have it all your own way, says Fianna Fáil, is very reminiscent of the PDs. Like, was it the 2007 yeah. election? Mm-hmm. You know, one party government, no tanks or something was, was the, the slogan. 2002, 2002, 2002 was the lamppost. It worked for them. You know? Didn't work in 2007, though. That's, yeah, yeah. Okay, now I'm going to give you a fair warning here. We're going to play another question and whoever I'm going to ask to answer it is going to have to be on their toes. My best friend and I have a long-standing wager. One quarter of the value of a Troy ounce of gold that there'll be an Irish president of EU commission before England next win the Men's World Cup. What side of this wager will the podcast come down on? Cormac, look, you know, England's never going to win the World Cup, so there definitely will be an Irish president long be- long before that will happen. But there might uh, be the, a European commission by then. But, you know, that's entirely possible too. <laughs> Thank you, Eleanor. <laughs> Now, we have a question. Uh, we have a question from a politician, or at least a budding politician. How are you doing? My name is Adam O'Callaghan. I'm 21 years old, and 
I'm the Green Party local area rep for Ballinamore in County Leitrim. Coming up to the June 2024 elections, I'm thinking, how does a young person representing the Green Party get elected in rural Ireland? I'm the youngest person to ever run in my area, and I'm the first ever Green Party candidate. Is it possible that we might see change in this upcoming election? Or does the Green Party have too negative a reputation in rural Ireland? And will people just conform to civil war politics? Um, any insights would be great to hear. So uh, one sarcastic member of our panel before we started this programme suggested that the answer to the question was change your party. Uh, but that's obviously not the advice we're going to give Adam. And congratulations on being so committed to politics and engaging the electoral process at such a, such a young age. Um, Jen, what do you think? I was literally about to say the same thing. <laughs> no, um, no, I'm not trying to be cynical at all. And, and I think that's amazing that he's running um, and I wish him the best of luck. I think that his youth probably is the attractive sort of proposition that he that he brings to the table um, and I think if you it's such a tricky one right because the Greens are polling so low I mean I think in our last poll Pat they were around 3% were they roughly 3% mm-hmm. yeah like that's they're dire numbers you know and it does not bode well for the next local or general election however but all small parties live on the edge they do they live on the edge and they love to live on the edge but you know the Greens obviously Everybody knows, you know what the Green Party, what they're raising to Etra is, obviously. And I think he should just focus on on that, basically. And But in the words of Kermit the Frog, it's not easy being green in rural Ireland these days, is it? <laughs> oh, absolutely not. And you know what? It's so interesting. Um, anytime I've ventured into <laughs> rural Ireland, it sounds like I never leave Dublin, um, I've really noticed that Eamon Ryan is a hate figure. People absolutely despise him in the country. Why you know, do you think that is? Because he's talking about the shift to, you know, um, electric vehicles. And a lot of people who live early point out that there are no charging points nearby. Um, you know, they could stall in the middle of nowhere, particularly taxi drivers early. Obviously, they would have very strong views about it. And they, I think a lot of people would view some of the green ambitions as just being a little bit too far out of reach and not realistic for people who live rurally, which is which makes sense. Um, but I think if if you actually look at the issues that matter to people at the moment, it's housing, healthcare, um, and now immigration, I think, is coming in on, on a hot third. I think if you focused on those issues and found a way to communicate, particularly with younger voters, um, on that, then maybe that would be a good start. But that's but, my But the Greens advice. are never going to lead on those sort of no, issues. No. What he needs to do is to find and or persuade enough people that it's the Green issues are the most important ones to consider when they are voting. Now, the Greens are never going to be, or at least within the foreseeable future are never going to be a 20% party or a 30% party, but they don't They don't need to be. You know, they need, I mean, I don't know how many seats in what he's looking for, you know, in his in his local area, but he's going to be looking for 10% of the vote. So like a thousand. Anyway, so, you yeah. know, so... And, and, and there is, without, we, without stereotyping there here, there, there, there is a hippie kind of polytunnel vote available in I'm not sure how big it is in Ballinamore, but, um, but it is certainly bigger in rural Ireland than it was five years ago, I think. Mm. I'm not sure if it's big enough to get him elected. My guess is it might be at some stage if not this time. And if he doesn't succeed next June, well, then he should have another go the next time. Um, yeah, and I hate to say this obvious thing and I'm going to sound old, but like obviously he's, I think, 18. He's probably very active in 21. social media. 21, sorry, very active in social media. I bet he has a TikTok account and knows exactly how to use it. Um, those, being active on those platforms doesn't directly lead to a vote, obviously, but it, it, it can increase your 
brand recognition and your recognition as a candidate you can put yourself out there so use all those tools that's what I'd say I think we will keep an eye on this young man's progress we will keep an eye on you okay <laughs> moving on way. here's our next question from Lorcan Quinn hi guys uh, love the podcast my question relates to how the proportional representative voting system that Ireland follows will limit the ability of far right parties to get a foothold in the doll. Uh, I'm not really sure what other countries in Europe use PR as their voting system. I think Germany might use some element of it and AFD seem to get in there. Um, but I always feel like generally far right parties are more of a single uh, issue or appeal to a single issue vote and where they would lose in a PR system would be very few people would vote for them as number two or number three. You'd vote for them for number as number one or not at all. Uh, so I just want to hear your thoughts on whether that would limit their ability to gain in the doll. So Cormac, I mean, lots of countries have proportional representation systems. There's different kinds of proportional representation systems. The the, the German system is a list system, which uh, which Lorcan referred to there, which is a very, very different kind of a dynamic. I think we have exactly the same system as far as I know as Malta. It's another gift from the departing British colonial power. Um, do you think it would block the rise of a, of a, of a hard-right, far-right party? Arguably, it'd have the other opposite effect. You know, it depends on the size of the constituency. In a, in a big five-seater constituency, it allows for more diversity among the different parties that might have a chance of getting elected. In a three-seater, okay, you're not you're not going to get a far-right party elected there. It will depend on the context. It'll depend on what area of the country is doing the voting, the size of the constituency. I still don't think there will be a, a far-right candidate elected in the next general election, whatever whatever about maybe the, the local elections where you need much fewer votes to actually get over the line. I think people in this studio, including, I think, you, Pat, but um, also other people too, have said that the success of independence in Ireland, which is one of the kind of the unique features of the Irish political system, is probably the thing that's the single biggest block to uh, possibly a party of any sort, but in this case, a far right party. I mean, yes, because and I think you're what you're seeing with this the independence. I mean, the Irish political system is highly responsive to voter sentiment in many respects, and none more responsive than the independents because they don't have to answer to a party whip. They don't have to align themselves with party policy. They are entirely free to reflect what local interests uh, want their political representatives to talk about. So what you're seeing is the, uh, the independents are the ones that are most often vocalising concerns um, about immigration, about asylum centres in various localities uh, and so forth. And what normally happens and in Irish politics... that's because they're the ones who are most responsive. Yeah, I think so, okay. yeah. And, and, and they're also, they don't have ideological scruples, most of them. I mean, now, we talk about the independents, uh, and, but, you know, the independents in the doll span the entire ideological spectrum, such as it is. They include the most, probably the most right-wing people and maybe some of the most left-wing people. But you're largely uh, talking here about, you're talking rural, about, about rural, rural independence. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, some of which are, I suppose, conservative on the right spectrum, the likes of Maddie McGrath, Tipperary and so forth. Others are more centrist uh, uh, and so forth. But what tends to happen in Irish politics is that they are, you know, they are 
the vectors for the introduction into political debate of some of these concerns because they're taking it up then some of the mainstream parties tend to tend to take as, it as up as we've seen and, in recent days exactly exactly so I, right, yeah. I, I that process now does that mean that you know that hard right anti-immigration candidates such as have formed themselves into parties in other european countries couldn't be elected here I don't. I don't think it does, but I think it is a it is a break on that likelihood. Right, Harry. I go back to the point that I made initially that things happen far more quickly now in terms of political change than they happened maybe a generation ago, and we've seen in Spain, uh, in Italy, and other places, uh, populist political movements go from zero to being challenging for government within the space of three or four years. We've seen it in Spain with Vox, for example, which has been a phenomenon which has gone from nothing. Uh, to to have it was a favourite to win the last election. In the end, it didn't, uh, but it came quite close to winning the election. Now, I'm not saying that we're going to see the same phenomenon happening here, but I wouldn't be surprised if a number of of uh, specifically anti-immigrant candidates uh, win seats in the local elections next year, especially in Dublin. I, I can think Absolutely. of Kenya, yeah. two or three people in Dublin will win, and I wouldn't be. But are they established independents already? Yes that have attached themselves to this sentiment or are they people who've come out of nowhere and said, I don't like the foreigners. Does it matter for me? They, they are it does they actually are, yeah, because... They are established people, um, all of them. Yeah. Um, and may, maybe those who come out of nowhere will take a little bit longer to establish themselves. But I wouldn't be surprised. Um, I, I think it's a long shot, but I wouldn't be altogether surprised if at least one of the seats that, that is decided in the next election goes to somebody who comes from that side of the political spectrum. Yeah, it's not beyond the bounds of possibility. I agree with Harry. Uh, I mean, I don't see an individual one happening right now, but I I, I just think that this issue has just kind of exploded yeah. in yeah. a way into political consciousness. And, it's, it's not, and I think it is going yeah. to be one that is at the forefront of political debate from now until the next election. And, and therefore you can't, completely yeah. discount that possibility. And th- the thing is that it's, it's I mean, we, we brand it all as kind of far right, but it's kind of more complex than that. There are, I mean, if you look at the protests, for example, in in Uttarur during the week, there was quite a lot of anti-immigrant sentiment there, but they couldn't be described as far right in a million years because most of them would be supporters of conventional parties. They're rural people. There's a bit of nimbyism there. There's a bit of irrational fear. Uh, there's There are other factors at play. There are people who, who feel and who are not on the extremes who feel that, uh, to quote our friend Noel Thomas, uh, that the inn is full. Now, whatever validity that particular viewpoint ha- has, that viewpoint has taken purchase, mm-hmm. not just w- within a kind of a narrow cohort way over on the extreme of the right, but it is beginning to take an increasing purchase uh, amongst supporters of what we would describe as conventional parties. So how and I think useful. Michael Martin averted to that yesterday. <laughs> he said that, that uh, uh, immigration is going to be a dominant political issue not only here, but in throughout Europe uh, during 2024. So how useful is the phrase far right at the moment we are now in political development in Europe in particular? I ask partly because I uh, watched with interest Rishi Sunak mm. hobnobbing with Georgia Maloney uh, last week, getting on like a, like a house on fire. And we see other examples across Europe of parties of what used to be called the traditional centre-right um, moving in that direction, you know, who knows what the next Dutch government is going to be like. So maybe, I don't know, I, I don't mean to uh, 
I don't mean that these labels don't mean anything. They do at the moment, but the, there seems to be a lot of shifting going on around. Yeah, the but edges. hold on. Like we we need to kind of name name what it is. I mean, we see people on the streets shouting about foreigners, people who you know assemble outside yeah. asylum seekers and chant "burn them out." They are far right street pro, you know, street activists, and you know we shouldn't. I, I think we shouldn't flinch from naming them as such. Beyond that, there is a concern, um, I, probably a mainstream concern now about immigration and asylum seekers. Now, as Harry says, some of that is ill-informed. Some of it is born of rational fears about changing massively the character of small rural communities with an influx of a large number of people who are very different from the people that are there and will put strain on local services and that. Now, there are dozens and dozens and dozens of stories from all over the country. One is Bursa Kane, there's, uh, uh, which has you know, been, been well ventilated in, in the media, where local communities have got to know the people who have come, who have worked with government officials, who have made people welcome and have made the thing work. But that is not something that happens without an enormous amount of goodwill from local communities and cooperation and sensitivity from government agencies. And the difficulty that some of the government agencies have is that they are snowed under with numbers, they haven't prepared adequately, and they're landing people on local communities that are fearful of it and ill-equipped to deal with it. Yeah, it's kind of Hobson's choice. It's the street or accommodation and the difficult, the gap that's left there is there's no consultation with the local communities. And that's what kind of foments a lot of the anger. And Pat referred to it, when it's been done properly, it's been done extraordinarily well. Balahadreen in County mm. Roscommon is another place. Liston Varn is con- in County Clare. Sure. It's another yeah. place where there was a lot of consultation. Uh, the local community was brought in and, and it worked very well. Let's go without saying that when you're talking about those seeking international protection, the numbers have gone right up in recent years. But there's still a tiny proportion of all those who come into Ireland uh, each year legally you know we are a multi- you go outside the door here in Dublin we are in a mu- we are a multicultural society mm-hmm. you know uh, a, a significant proportion of the Irish population uh, in 2023 wasn't born in, in Ireland it's like 25% and, of the workforce and, 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 and I would say Harry that the majority of people here are perfectly happy with that but, it, no is, creates no but it is but it will come as no surprise that there will be some people who are not happy with that and it's not just that they're not happy with I, mean, with, I think we kind of run the risk with, of with you know, talking around uh, talking around this for the evening but I, I think it is very clear that it is now, this is one of the big changes that has occurred in Irish politics in 2023, that this is now front and centre and in a way that it hasn't been before and I think will remain so. Yeah. We're going to take a very different question now from Ray Cunningham. Jack's book on the pandemic is still available and Pat's books can be found in all good charity shops. Well, what books would the panellists like to write? What subjects do you think are deserving of that deeper extended analysis? Harry, it's a great question, but there is a great gaping hole there in the question. There is a glaring omission there. Because there is another author in the room apart from those who were mentioned. Well, for many years, it was a source of great bitterness to me that unlike Pat Leahy and, uh, and Jack Corgan Jones, I was not a published author, but I remedied it this year. So I did have I did publish a book this and year. Congratulations. And congratulations. And thank you. I was very happy yeah. with it. But uh, if I were to write a um, a book, um, I, I think it, it might hark back to the, um, to, to the very first question we had uh, this evening, about the the uh, the death of politics as we know it, the fragmentation of Irish politics, uh, the end of the hegemony uh, enjoyed by Fine Gael and Fianna Fáil. Actually, 
Uh, one analysis uh, of the 2020 election was that it wasn't a win for Fianna Fáil. It was people actually voting against Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael. People didn't want Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael. A generation who had no allegiance to Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael had none of the old uh, civil war connections to, to either party uh, decided that they wanted something else. And when they cast their eyes around, the only alternative that was feasible in their eyes at the time uh, was uh, Sinn Féin. So if I were to write a book, uh, I, that, the book would be looking, exploring that phenomenon. Jen, what would your book be? Do you know, actually, I'm just finishing writing a fiction book. Um, uh, yes, it's a mystery. Um, but uh, I don't know if it got published. <laughs> but no, if I was, aside from that, if I was to... Um, Are you shopping it around? May I ask? Yeah, I actually, I sent to some agents in London. I got good feedback. They said it was the structure is too complicated. So I went back and reworked it. Okay. Wrecked my brain. It ruins my sleep. Um, but uh, yeah, so I'm going to resend it and hopefully we'll have some good news. But if I was to do like a book, a fact book, I think I would love to do a book on how Sinn Féin won or lost the election um, and then how they handled their first year in government. Mm. Cormac, I think you and I are looking like the only people. Maybe you have written a book. I haven't, and I, in all honesty, have no intention of doing what so anytime soon. Um, <laughs> well, well, I'm, I'm getting life. to that. I mean, it, they they say kind of write about what you know. I've I've two young children at home, and I deal, deal with deal with um, deal with tantrums and people making a mess and unreasonable demands. No, but what about at home? No, <laughs> never mind the doll. Well, this you see, this is the thing. I have the title. For, here, I have actually, the title yeah. for the book, which is uh, throwing your toys out of the. The Pram, a, a a parenting guide through the lens of Irish politics. Mm. Uh, <laughs> this is fantastic. That's that's yeah, that's it. I, that's I have no idea. serious answer to that I question. Right sell, now, I think I think you could sell that yeah. book actually, Pat. What's in the pipeline? Well, I have I have, I have uh, so I published a couple of books. Um, uh, the last of which was published in 2013, which uh, I know is 10 years ago now. And I have um, dinner with my uh, publisher about twice a year, in which we discuss a book, uh, uh, the next the next book. But uh, not, nothing ever happens. And one of the difficulties I uh, I, I find is that uh, the daily grind. I'm sure you guys find the same. The mm-hmm. daily grind of covering politics is such that it leaves very little time for. Well, anything else, but also reflection on that. When I wrote my um, earlier two books. You were a gentleman journalist with the Sunday Business Well, I I was, yeah, I I was the political editor of the Sunday Business Post. Working for a Sunday paper and for a daily paper. Well, it was certainly a more gentlemanly process (laughs) through the week, uh, I I think. Uh, And I suppose it was a time when online journalism wasn't so uh, important certainly uh, for for Sunday papers at the time all of which is a rather long-winded excuse uh, for not writing anything in the meantime I have let's say, some let's say reasonably developed money and ideas. time were no object what would you, what would well, you like to write yeah about? I think there's a big book to be written on the changes in Irish politics in the last quarter century or so um, I think that would be uh, I think that would be interesting I just have a couple of other um, ideas as well that I think would be would be interesting a, a history of um, Irish uh, military experts Exploits in uh, in the US, I think, uh, was kind of a half idea that I have doing in the US something like during on, the in the Civil US, War, yeah, yeah, exactly. Say from well, yeah. actually from the Revolutionary War mm-hmm. on. Um, obviously, there was an awful lot of Irish went over there during the during the Civil War. Fought on both sides, actually, the majority of them on the uh, on the Union side. An ancestor of mine was killed uh, uh, fighting for the Union side in the Civil War. But obviously, then there's this you know this great kind of Irish tradition uh, in the uh, Second World, Second World War as well. So anyway. 
uh, that 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 is something. And about about half a dozen other projects that you know will never see the light That's of fascinating. day. But if I am to do something, I I think I would like to do. Uh, a, a well, would you bring it right up politics. to like World War One, World War Two, Vietnam? That. I think you would have to, yeah, we would have to. But yeah. th- that's about three books away. Yeah, Desert Storm, the whole shebang, yeah. everything. Hugh, I want to hear your answer. Oh, God. I, yeah. have, I have two two answers. They're both kind of, well, well, one is definitely a complete pipe dream, which is there's a book called Black Lamb, Grey Falcon by an author called Rebecca West, which uh, in which she takes a journey through Yugoslavia just immediately before the Second World War from Slovenia down to Macedonia and meets all these weird people and there's all this weird stuff going on at the shadow of wars hanging above it. I would love to do a book which would involve retracing the steps of that book. It's a very odd but, uh, book that I, that I like a lot. Um, so that'd be one thing but I'd need to learn a bit of Serb or Croat maybe along the way or have an interpreter. It's quite straightforward. Ha- have an interpreter <laughs> with me. It's quite straightforward, is it? I'd pick it up in Duolingo in a, in a couple of months. Uh, something a little bit closer to home. I, I did have a notion once that I could write a book which would take as its theme something which is only about 100 metres away from us here, which is the loop line, which is the connector kind of Victorian monstrosity of an elevated rail line that runs between what used to be called Westland Road Station, which is now Pier Street, and what is now called Connolly Station, which used to be called Amian Street. And it's a sort of a little microcosm of Dublin history and Dublin life and a lot of the things that are bad, probably. It's a kind of a social, it would be a sort of a social history. There's the, a lot the sort of, of kind of travel books or walk-around books are... are mm. There's a lot of them out there. They have to be very good to work. I'm well, sure it would yours, be, of course, it would I'm sure be very good. Your, yours, yeah. yours It'd be a kind be, of yeah. psychogeography, yeah. I think people yeah. people call people call these kind of books. The one I'd like to re- pa- I'd re- retrace the path of is um or is is is, is Belloc's path to Rome. Yes, entertaining. Indeed. Yeah, yeah, indeed. Love in the Apennines. I just think it's great. Are there any publishers yeah. listening? <laughs> well, 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 not at this stage. Well, what, what, what I expect we'll six figure in Actually, Pat was here. mentioning the war and one of the great books about uh, journalism is a book called The First Casualty by Philip Knightley and it's about war reporting since the Crimean War. And one of the things that was striking when I first read it was the number of Irish people uh, who were war correspondents and war journalists uh, from the 19th century onwards. Some of the most famous war correspondents uh, were Irish people. Including so, Bertie Smiley, who went on be, to become one of yeah, the most famous editors of the Irish Times, and, and including the guy—I think his name was Russell. It was the guy who who um, who, who first broke the uh, the the story about the charge of the Light Brigade, as far as I know, as well. That's right. Yeah, yes, yeah. That's right. And yeah. I think cannons was, to the right of them, cannons to the left of them, on their road. Yeah, six hundred. You know, your podcast is in trouble when Tennyson is starting to get quoted uh, from <laughs> from from memory, <laughs> and it's definitely our cue to move on. Sean Ryan. Uh, writes in. He asks, uh, this is a little bit lengthy, I may, uh, forgive me Sean if I abridge this a little bit, but he says Ireland has resources comparable to countries like Finland, the Netherlands, Belgium and Austria when it comes to public services such as health, transport, social services or even the ability to defend ourselves from external threats, we lag way behind those countries. I cannot recall ever hearing an Irish politician, whether in government or opposition, benchmarking our public services against those of our nearest EU neighbours. Instead, the economically stagnant United Kingdom, with its long history of tax cutting at the expense of public services, always seems to be the chosen comparator. I sense no real appetite for European-style public services. Um, Why do you think this is? Are we libertarians, actually more comfortable with Birmingham than Berlin? Or alternatively, do we yearn for the public services of our European neighbours, but lack either the power to deliver them or the belief that such things could really be possible in Ireland? There is a big disjunction there, isn't there? Or there seems to be between the rhetoric of how well off we all are now. When I say we, I mean all of us who live in this in this country and the public transport, the health system, all the all the things that are mentioned there. Yeah, it's a really interesting question because and, and 
in its length. Mm-hmm. Put yourself to shame. You. And actually, I, I knew could, you I were going to find an opportunity any part yeah. of it. But actually, if you look <laughs> at... You'll for that later on, Pat, don't you worry. <laughs> if you look at... Um, at the moment. Good. <laughs> if you look at um, even the health service, for example, it's such a mixed bag. You know, we have one of the highest life expectancies of the in the European Union. Um, we produce the most amount of doctors, almost. And yet, we, we also spend the, one of the highest amounts per capita on our health budget, and yet we have the fewest available hospital beds. Um, I saw Sinn Féin, um, Sinn Féin doorstep there the other day talking about how this was the worst year for waiting lists. Albeit, to be fair, there has been progress on waiting lists. It's always with the health servers. I imagine it like this big, unknowable, amorphous blob that nobody can ever really properly make sense of. Why is it the case that we spend so much money and we have so many people waiting to get access for the basics, you know, basic procedures? Um, and successive governments have failed and not only to sort it, um, but to answer that question. And we know we've got Solange Care, which by all measures, to date, a lot of the measures set out and that have not been achieved. And I think that's a fair analysis of it. I know, Pat, you've written about that before. Um, and if you, to the question, if you look at the way the debate is in Ireland. Because it's not just Often health. it's about it's tax the, cuts. You know, it's about it's tax. the standard of... Instead of investment in public services. It's of everything. It's childcare, it's public transport. Mm. It's a range of things which people, it is true, would take for granted in other Northern European countries. I think we have a habit in Ireland of throwing money at a problem rather than actually addressing what's going on. That happens in the health service. And even if you look at childcare, the government, when they are in the next election, when they're defending themselves, they'll talk about how they cut childcare by, on average, at least 50% and perhaps more after the next budget. But what people seem to really want is more of a public provision of of childcare. I just think we have a, a habit of flinging money at something when fundamentally it doesn't work. Yeah. What do you think? I, I was interested in the question, which I think is a very good one, but there's a couple of false premises in it, I think. I mean, the questioner says that he doesn't see the appetite for European-style public services in Ireland. I'm not sure that's the case at all. I detect that appetite everywhere. I think there's an appetite for much better public services. What there isn't is an appetite to pay for those public services, to have the sort of tax burden that we see in other European countries to sustain those public services. To, to, to sustain those public services. Um, he's also right, though. The questioner is also right when he says, you know, where are all the comparators between the performance of our public services, and you could particularly talk about health in this regard, and the public services of, uh, of, of other countries. And actually, I think that's because the providers of those public services don't really want that much scrutiny on the performance of public services here. And actually, there are comparators. There's things like the OECD's Health at a Glance, which shows inter alia things like we've got a lot of nurses... In this country, per capita, we're nearly up at the top of the numbers of nurses. Notwithstanding this, we hear from nurses' representatives all the time uh, on the airwaves to which they have, it seems to me, more or less open access, complaining that they don't have enough staff and they're not well paid enough, their conditions are not. Now, all of us here have had some interaction with health services and we have seen that many frontline staff, I wouldn't say all, but many frontline staff work really hard in really stressful conditions. But they're also, their representatives are in many cases quite resistant to changing the way that they work to make the provision of those services uh, more efficient. So, for example, there has been uh, an effort by successive governments to have consultants on call 24-7 
And what what the, this the is pro- a good example. Yeah. yeah. The problem is that that's, that 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 they have inherited systems that have been in place for for a decade. Somebody once said that reform is like taking. Uh, a bone from a dog you know it's always going to be resisted there are work practices in place uh, that are well established and every time somebody goes in and tries to reform them and tries to change them they encounter a huge degree of resistance and the unions are strong the nursing unions are strong uh, the medical unions are strong in the health service and we get the same in well, What about more broadly are you saying the that's, guards, that's the case across well, the, the guards, what happened the was board? a new roster came in during Covid and that new roster was essentially they were working for four days. And four days on, four hours. days off, yeah. Four days on, four days And they like it because it gives them four days off. Who wouldn't? Yeah. And they don't want to go back. So um, th- th- that has created this standoff I with suppose. Drew Harris, the commissioner. And you, you get it across the civil service that people have deals that were arranged as a convenience 20 or 30 years ago that they just yeah. can't reverse Listen, I now. think everything that you're saying and everything that you're saying as well, Pat, and everything you're saying, Jen, is absolutely right. There are obviously huge questions of, of inefficiencies and failure to deliver value for money within the, within the public services. And, you know, that comes from the top because, you know, that the... People haven't faced up to, you know, haven't confronted those those, those kinds of demands. They, they, they worked difficult around. to do. But it's not the only issue, is it? I mean, there is a question of of the burden of taxation. I know that from some people's perspective, this is a highly taxed country. But from others, you know, if you're you know up until a certain level of income, you're not taxed at all. Whereas if you were in Denmark or Germany, you probably would be paying twenty or twenty twenty five percent tax. <laughs> Plus, you'd be paying local taxes and, and for for local services like like bin collections and, mm. and things like that. So there's there's that too. I do also wonder whether there's an element in, in some of those countries that they have had an accumulation of wealth. They've had successful economies and industries going back a number of different generations. Is, no, so they've going built, back hundreds of years. They've some built of them, some lines the centres and were urban infrastructure. Yeah. Ireland, Ireland and, has been wealthy you know? for, for But also some of them had to be years. Some of them had to be completely rebuilt well, in the middle of the last well, century. Well, in a way, and, can, and in a perverse way, the, that ended up being an economic advantage for some of them as well. You, you, you go know? to Vienna so and you see there. the wealth on the streets, like mm-hmm. in a way that you don't in Ireland. Mm-hmm. Ireland's been wealthy for 25 years and in the middle of that, we had the crash. You know, mm-hmm. it's it, it's comparing apples and oranges when you're talking about There these, is one other thing countries. that I banged on this, about in this studio from time ah, to time which is, which is thank you Pat uh, which is that we spend an awful lot of the tax we raise in redressing fundamental wealth inequalities which exist before tax and social transfers this is entirely true and that yeah. is a huge amount of money which which heavy lifting which has to be done just to get us back to a European average because in our of, in market inequality as in the yeah. inequality yeah. before the intervention of government yeah. is the highest in Europe but our inequality post government transfers government mandated is slightly transfers above average is, it's it's yeah, it's, 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 in, it, it's yeah, not yeah. bad but that means that a huge amount of the state's efforts and the state's uh, capital investment goes into redressing that inequality rather than doing all the other things that we've been talking about that we might like yeah, here. I mean, we've got this stage of the podcast where the, 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 the questions are kind of irrelevant. We're just shooting the breeze here. <laughs> yeah, well, but there me. is a point. I think <laughs> our questioners would disagree because we have plenty more to come. And indeed, there are so many here to come that you're going to have to tune in again in a few days' time because this is the end of the first instalment. I didn't warn you at the top, but this is the truth. We're having a two-parter. This is the first instalment of our Ask Me Anything. Join us very shortly in a couple of days' time for the second one. For the moment, thanks to our guests, uh, to our producer Declan Conlon and our engineer JJ Vernon. 